0: If you would, take your Bible and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 12. We're going to finish out chapter 12 this morning, um, looking at verses 54 to 59. Uh, Throughout life, there's always the, the possibility of missing something, missing out on something. Today's newspaper is the Sunday paper which means that there's about 50% news and 50% advertisements, right? Um, and the advertisements will be filled with sales that you don't want to miss. Don't don't miss out on this sale. Uh, throughout the week, you've been told, probably, if you've watched TV at all, that you don't want to miss this particular television episode, the season finale or the season premiere or something amazing is going to happen that you don't want to miss. Or or maybe in our community there's there's some sort of summer event, like a community picnic on the 24th, and you don't want to miss that. I mean, it's the event of the summer, you know, don't miss that. There's more important things in life that we probably don't want to miss. Think about Russell and, and Jordan. You don't want to miss the birth of your second child because you're playing golf or at work or something like that. That's something you don't want to miss, Right. Now, my wife and I often have been told, we have kids that are a certain age, and they say, don't don't miss these these years. They go by so quickly. Don't get so busy that you neglect these years. Or maybe it's a, a job opportunity. Maybe it's the chance to travel somewhere. Maybe you can even think about times that you've actually, you have missed something important. You've missed out on it. That, that pain of, oh, I wish I would have been there. I wish I would have done that. I wish I could have seen that. You had the opportunity, but you, you missed that. And here in our text today I really think that's what Jesus is telling us you don't want to miss this he says you don't want to miss this this is this is important he's calling us not to miss um, something that's way important than a sale on mattresses or a television show finale it's it's more important than even the the birth of your children um, it's it, what Jesus is talking about here if, if we miss it the consequences are not only now but they are. For all eternity, we don't want to miss what Jesus is going to talk about here because it's the most important thing in the world, and our lives depend upon it. Of course, you might not think right now that that it's really all that important. Maybe you—I'm saying this is this is vitally important. This is important to your soul and to your eternity. And and some of you are like, "Well, it might be important. I don't know if it's that important, Andy." I think that what Jesus is going to convince us here of, and that part of the, the purpose of this passage is to convince us that what he's talking about is actually really truly that important, the most important thing in the world that we could ever think about. My prayer is that we would all see that, that we would determine not to, not to miss this important message. For some of us, this is going to be a reminder that this is what is truly important. What Jesus has done for us is what is most important. We need to be reminded ourselves and we we need to be reminded because we live in a world of people that are that are blind to this important truth. That the message of of Jesus should be on our lips as we speak to people because people are walking through lives thinking that there are other important things and they're missing out on what is most important and we as followers of Christ need to say with Jesus, You don't want to miss this. Look with me at at, at Luke twelve, fifty four through Fifty nine, and we're going to consider what exactly it is that we're in danger of missing, uh, why we might miss it, and how we can keep ourselves from missing it. So again, Luke 12, 54-59, what could we miss, why might we miss it, and how do we keep from missing it? It says there in, in verse 54, He also said to the crowds, this is Jesus speaking, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Again, Jesus is saying you don't want to miss this. It says in verse 54, we should note that he is speaking to the crowds. He's talking to the, the crowds. Throughout chapter 12, he's kind of gone back and forth. Sometimes he's speaking to disciples. Sometimes he's speaking to the, the, the crowd in general. Here specifically, his teaching is focused on the crowds. It's it's focused on those maybe that are unsure about who he is, or maybe they're on the fence a little bit, um, or those who had outright rejected him. He has a message for those who, who aren't ready to follow him and those who are ready to reject him. And this is all in the context of all this teaching about being ready. Hasn't that been the flavor of chapter 12? Just There's something important that you need to be ready for. Remember that there's there's this day of revealing. We need to recognize that all will be revealed, and so we should be afraid and we should fear not. And talking about um, the, the folly of, of riches, of investing in the present kingdom and missing the, the eternal kingdom. There's something we need to concentrate on to, in the future. We talked about last week the, the division that Jesus can cause and, and how we need to, to truly follow him now in the present despite whatever the, the consequences might be. And so Jesus begins this this message to the crowd by by citing an example of something that people there knew very well, namely the the weather. And he describes their ability to predict the weather. Now there were no weathermen, meteorologists. I don't think in those days, no Mark Weinberg or Kevin Harnett, whoever your favorite is, you couldn't turn on CBS to see what Jay was going to say about. The five-day forecast, you know. But that didn't mean that people were oblivious to to weather patterns. In fact, they were probably much better at observing uh, what was happening in the skies than we are because we can just turn on the TV or look on an app or something and and see what the weather is going to be. But they had to pay attention to the skies and jesus notes that everyone knew that a cloud rising in the west meant that a shower was possibly was probably coming if you think about the geography of israel to the west is the mediterranean sea and so the moisture from the mediterranean sea would rise in the west and come across and probably bring a shower um, on the land there. A a wind coming up from the south would be coming up from the southern warmer climates and would be bringing a a scorching heat. I listened to one pastor preaching this and he said, you know, it may even have been that as Jesus is teaching, that he noticed everyone's eyes sort of looking off towards the west. and, And maybe even at that moment there was a cloud Forming And people were getting ready for what was inevitably going to happen, that this um, this shower was going to come. There are all kinds of different weather predictions like that, some that we probably don't know anymore in, in our day of technology. But the Farmer's Almanac list of these, I looked up some of these, things that you probably have heard before, things like clear moon, frost soon. Things I don't know, some generation knew this. Or uh, If there's a ring around the moon, it means there's rain real soon. I've heard this one actually, red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Some of you are nodding, you've heard this. So that's kind of what these phrases, these ideas are, are like. So if you look to the sky and you can consider what's happening around you, you can make a reasonable guess about what the weather is going to be like. We all knew something was going to happen yesterday, right? I mean, the, cloud was, the, the sky was pretty clear that, that a storm was going to roll in eventually. It's all fairly obvious, but after pointing this out, Jesus comes to his listeners with a, a familiar rebuke. He says what? You hypocrites. <laughs> you actors. You pretenders. You bunch of fakes. Now, the issue isn't that they are predicting the weather. Jesus, There's nothing sinful about predicting the weather. But it's, it's the fact that it says there, you know how to interpret the appearance of, sky, of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present Time. They could see the earth and sky and understand that, but they were miserable at understanding the times that they were in, even in that moment. They could see clear weather patterns, but they didn't understand what was happening right before their very eyes. Leon Morris puts it like this, They understood the winds of earth, but not the winds of God. They could discern the sky, but not the heavens. Let's be clear about what exactly they were missing. So I've said... You don't want to miss this. What's the answer to what we might miss, what we are in danger of of missing? You'll notice in the text there's two questions, right? Verse 56, why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And verse 57, why do you not judge for yourselves? What is right, and I think that these drive home the main point of Jesus and what He is making sure that we don't miss. There's a paragraph break in my Bible. Do you have a paragraph break between fifty-six and fifty-seven for this morning? Let's just kind of ignore that. I think that these two passages are together, and I think that these questions sort of play off one another and clarify one another as to what exactly Jesus is is saying. So the first one is the first question is why do you not underst- why do you not know how to interpret the, the present time? So again, they understand the, the physical world around them, but they're missing what's happening right before their very eyes. What's happening in the, the present time. What is happening in the present time? I think what he's speaking of is actually the the, the nothing less than the, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and the presence of the messiah right in their midst it was this day that all of history had been had been pushing towards it's what jesus proclaimed in luke 4 that we read as our as our call to worship that his coming marked the year of the lord's favor it's what jesus proclaimed not just in word at that moment but also in all his deeds as as the the blind were made were given sight as the deaf were were able to hear as the dead were raised to life These men and women that were standing in the crowd there listening to Jesus or sitting in the grass as He spoke, they saw these things right in front of their very eyes. And Jesus says, you see all of these things, and yet you have no idea what's going on. He's speaking to people who were there who who could see physically, but spiritually they were blind. They could hear His words, but they were deaf to what He was really saying. They were like dead men and women. Isn't that amazing is what Jesus is saying. You can you can interpret the weather. You can see everything in the sky and you know what's what's going to happen. And and so surely if they knew that, they knew the signs of of the coming of the Messiah. Yet with everything that was surrounding them, all these signs that of who Jesus was and the coming of the kingdom, they they just missed it. They didn't get it. And before we're too quick to point the finger, that, that happens today too. And how much sadder that is because we have this this even fuller revelation of, of, of who God is, of who what Jesus has done, of, of Scripture in our hands. This clear explanation of who Jesus was. Not to mention the fact that we have church history that has spoken to us for years about what Christ has done for us. And yet so many don't know how to interpret the present time. We don't understand what's happening right in front of us. We're missing the fact that this is the year of the of the Lord's favor missing the importance of this present time. The second question is is verse 57, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? This this gets at this idea of missing what's happening, but it also it, it, you're missing the necessary response to this present time. The, the second question, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? It has to do with with not only not understanding the time that they were in, but but also Jesus is wondering why the crowds are not responding as they should. They, they should be responding in faith with, with hearts that desire to follow him, but but they're not. So if we kind of combine these, these two questions, we get a picture of what they were missing. So what, what, are, what were the crowds in danger of missing, and, and what are we in danger of missing? I think it's this. It's the opportunity to trust Jesus. It's the chance to see the mercy of God in Christ and respond to his message of grace and of salvation. We miss this opportunity to, to trust Christ. We miss the, the gravity and the weight of the of the present time and the response that, that should follow if we understand that. Why did they miss this? I mean, what would keep them from from seeing this because Jesus is saying it's as obvious as the as the weather patterns that surround you and somehow you're missing what's happening in front of your your very eyes it, Jesus is clear though at the, as the reason isn't he in verse fifty six you hypocrites <laughs> you're missing it because you're a bunch of hypocrites that's that's why you're you're missing it. We've seen hypocrisy condemned at the end of chapter 11. Um, verse Chapter 12 talks about hypocrisy that was um, present in that day, and he warns us against that kind of hypocrisy. But what's, what's the hypocrisy here? What's this brand of hypocrisy that's causing them to miss these things? I think it's first marked by a preoccupation with lesser things. This hypocrisy is is marked by a preoccupation with with lesser things I, I think that's a little bit secondary in this passage but I, I think it's there it flows from the context of, of chapter twelve there's this subtle point that we might miss the message of Jesus because we're so preoccupied with with lesser things we're we're preoccupied with with the stuff of earth and with the fluff of religion uh, the stuff of earth I steal that from Rich Mullins in his song, if, if I Stand. You know that song? He says, The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance. I owe, I owe only to the giver of all good things. I love that line. And it just pierces my heart too. Because that, that that's so true, isn't it? That stuff, the things around us, they compete for our allegiance to Christ. We've seen this throughout this chapter that, that riches and the things of this world, they surround us and they, they cloud our thinking. They... Help us they, they make us think that the immediate concerns of life that that's what really matters. We saw it as Jesus addresses money and these things that are just going to fade. And here we find it with, with people who had more knowledge about about the weather on the horizon than they did about the Messiah who was in their their very midst. You know, there's nothing wrong with thinking about the weather. But if you're just an expert in the weather, you're probably neglecting something that that really matters. It's not a sin to be really good at trivial pursuit, but if that's the sum total of your knowledge, it's kind of trivial. <laughs> it's right there in the name, isn't it? Um, you know, some of us may be a little bit ashamed. I, I find myself sometimes being ashamed about. Why do I know all of that I, I wish i my mind was not filled with all of this useless knowledge. Sometimes we get so preoccupied with the the things that are around us. We live in an age of information right i mean we 've got things in our pocket that can answer almost any question that that we could come up with right now they 'll give us the the question the, the answer to that question but here 's the problem: if we know everything about everything and we ignore the one thing that is more important than everything else, then all our knowledge is really worth a bunch of nothing. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you know everything about everything. If you don't know the one thing that's most important, and Jesus says you you could have knowledge about so many things that surround you, but all the stuff of earth, but if you miss this, you're going to miss what's most important. How foolish it is to be an expert in the stuff of earth, but find ourselves ignorant about the things of God. It's not just the stuff of earth, though, it's the fluff of religion. And that's when we usually think about hypocrisy. I think probably what's going on partly is, is that the, the, the crowd is, is filled with Pharisees that are these rule keepers. They know how to do that. It's, this hypocrisy is prideful, man-made religion that focuses on externals. And the religious leaders of that day were so preoccupied with their rule keeping that they missed the Messiah standing right in front of them. They were so concerned with the rules that they thought Jesus was breaking that they missed the fact that that he was the fulfillment of everything that they were trying to do. It was so foolish for them to not see who he was and what he was accomplishing in front of them. Isn't that crazy that that religious practice, us practicing religion, can actually cloud our minds from seeing what's most important about who Jesus is? it's, uh, It's certainly scary to think about those in other religions that seem... To be seeking God that feels as if they are following after God, but actually their preoccupation with all those things, with with the fluff of religion, it's actually clouding their minds so they cannot see the the present time. They can't see who Jesus is and how important following Him is. So hypocrisy, it shows up here in this preoccupation with lesser things, with, with the stuff of earth and with the fluff of religion. But this hypocrisy is also expressed in willful ignorance willful ignorance. And I think that's the key here. I think that's the heart of Jesus' message. We, we mentioned earlier how it was it was so clear. Jesus' coming is, is so clear that, that He is the Messiah. He says it's as clear as as a cloud in the west, meaning that rain's coming. It's as clear as a wind from the south, meaning that it's going to be warm. But the, but the crowds pridefully and willfully... Ignored who Jesus was. Their hypocrisy, in part, was an unwillingness to think through what was happening before their very eyes. It was so obvious, but they refused to accept it. Have you ever been in an argument and you realized in the middle of it that you were wrong, but you refused to admit you were wrong and continued on in the argument? Some people are laughing. I've been in that situation. I, I read recently, I read um, in this book called Theology of the Reformers about Martin Luther. And if anyone knew how to be in an argument, it was Martin Luther. Um, Martin Luther was one of the great church reformers of the of the 16th century. Um, and he was in a debate with a man named John Eck. Let me just read you this story. I was struck by it. Luther's decisive break from the church of Rome came not at the diet of, It's not, I don't think it's worms, it's Worms, with a V, right? Okay. Uh, when he declared his conscience captive to the word of God, we all many of us may know about that, but two years early at the Leipzig debate, his opponent was the infamous and very able John Eck, whose name in German means corner, hence the saying that at Leipzig, Eck boxed Luther into a corner. Some irony there. Uh, Luther was the better Bible scholar, but Eck was the better church historian. Eck accused Luther of advocating certain theses of John Huss, which had been condemned 100 years before at the Council of Constance, for which Huss had been burned at the stake. Although Luther protested that he was not defending Huss, Eck kept pressing him on that point. Now, Luther does not want to be in... in cahoots with a guy that was burned at the stake for what he said, right? I mean, no one really wants to at that moment. Um, and so Eck keeps saying that he's, he's, he agrees with Huss. During the lunch break, Luther examined the records of the Council of Constance and discovered, to his great surprise, that Eck was right. <laughs> he had been advocating the same position as Huss. In the afternoon session, Luther astonished the whole assembly by declaring, in fact, uh, he says, I am a Hussite. I am with Huss. Now Luther was really in a corner. For Eck had forced him to ally himself with a condemned heretic, and to repudiate the authority of general councils as well as that of the Pope. For Luther, the old pillars of authority had been shattered. Thenceforth, his whole theology was erected on the foundation of sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Now I really respect Luther not only for standing on Scripture alone, but in that moment for realizing that that he was that this man who was accusing him was right. And then coming back into the debate and saying, you were right. Uh, there's something to that. There's, there's a humility to that. There's some courage to that, too. I think in part that's maybe what's keeping the people in Jesus' day from following after him. They've entrenched themselves against the message of Jesus. And, and suddenly they start to see, well, well maybe Jesus is right. But, but they willfully ignore, they pridefully say, we're not going to change our position on this. Even though they start to see the truth, they harden their hearts against him. That's true, I think, for many in our, our day and age, that, that if, I, if I admit that, that this whole thing is right, well, I've spoken against this for my whole life. I've always said that, that Jesus was wrong, that Christianity was a joke and a, and a crutch, and that you know Christians were weak-minded people. Now, if I, if I change my mind on that, I'm going to be in trouble. For others, it would it would mean to change their religion. Or, or maybe, as we saw last week, it means that, that you're going to cause division in your family if you start following after Christ. And so Jesus says, you see what's going on. You have to be totally blind to not see the weather patterns, to see the present age, to recognize how you're supposed to respond, but you are willfully, pridefully resisting what is so clear. Now, I think we have to temper that a little bit. Um, Philip Yancey has said nobody was ever argued into the kingdom and so there's this sense in which no matter uh, how much clear gospel evidence or re- evidence for the resurrection or any of the thing that we can give to people people don't reject Christianity because they're stupid people reject Christianity because they are blind because they do not see the truth that's in front of their eyes and so it's not a lack of information but it's that they are blind they do not see the truth of 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 what Christ has done because it is spiritually discerned. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 1-3 through 3 talks that that there's different kinds of wisdom and those that do not see are those that are blind to the truth of the Spirit. That doesn't mean we don't plead and reason with people because Jesus obviously does it, but we recognize that there's a necessary work of the Spirit that has to happen for people to see the truth. But sometimes that that happens, that that begins to happen in the heart of a person. But but sin and pride and the consequences for for belief and just the difficulty, all that, it, it starts to show up, and people harden themselves against the truth that is as plain as the nose on their face. They see it, but they're not ready to commit because to do so, it just shakes my life up life up a little bit too much. I just ask, maybe you're here today and. And the Spirit has done that. Spirit is opening your eyes to see, you know, this does make sense. That this is the year of the Lord's favor. That Jesus is who He really said He was. And you're continuing to remain willfully ignorant. You're, you're just going to stay blind to the truth of what Jesus has has revealed. I would encourage you not to do that. to, to Don't continue to resist if if God is revealing who Jesus is, don't don't resist that. Well, whatever reasons you might have to not bow the knee to Christ, it's it's not it's not worth it. I think that's the point of the end. You you, you don't realize it, it, if if you continue to harden yourself against this, the the consequences are eternal. This is no joking matter. If if we hear the words of Jesus at the end of this passage, he's he's telling us there are eternal consequences, and he makes it clear that now is the time to settle your debt with God. I think that's the main idea right at the end. He's saying now is the time, now is the time to settle your debt with God. That's the picture at the end of this passage, isn't it? Read it with me again in verse 58. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The picture is of a man being drug off to court because he is in debt. And whether we know it or not, we're all headed for a trial. (laughs) I don't know if you know this or not, but you have a court date ahead of you. You're going to have to go to court. That's never fun to go to court. Even if you're going for jury duty, it's no fun to go to court. But especially if you are on the defense, if you're being accused of something. Nobody wants to go to court for that, but we're all headed for a trial. And we are the accused. We are on the defense. And who is the accuser? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is our accuser, I think, in this passage, specifically even the coming of Jesus, the the message of Jesus, the clear message of Jesus, the cross of Christ, the resurrection, the good news that, that we have heard. This is the question that's before us. This is the accusation that's coming on us, and it's in the present time, have we seen who God is? He is reaching out this offer of salvation. Have we done what is right? Have we repented of our sin and believed in him? Because the picture is that Jesus is bringing us before the judge. He's bringing us before His Father. He's bringing us before God, who is the judge of all the earth. And as sinners, we have an eternal debt that is required of us before God. We have to pay this debt. We are in debt to God because of our sin. And it's an eternal debt. The Bible is clear that... that, that if we remain in sin, if we have sinned against a holy God, that there are eternal consequences that we must pay. Because of this, we are faced with God's judgment. We are in an eternal debt. And Jesus says here, settle now. Settle out of court. Don't wait until it's too late because you're going to be convicted and you're going to get thrown into the place of punishment and you're not going to get out until you've paid every last penny and and he says this is an eternal price our, our sin is against a holy god and so the penalty is eternal and and i don't think the picture is you're going to be in there until you have paid it all off i think the point is the debt is so great you can't pay it off you're there forever jesus is telling us to settle out of court <laughs> he's he's telling us don't wait till the trial because it's it's not going to go well if you've ever watched any kind of courtroom drama you know what this is about the the lawyer comes to the defendant and says we can't win this case you know you need to let's try to find some sort of plea bargain where we can settle out of court maybe there's an opportunity for a lesser sentence because if if we don't negotiate on this trial it's it's going to go and you're guilty and it's obvious to everyone and there's going to be issues and you're going to be there. You're going to pay every penny of this debt. But if we settle now, maybe maybe we can get something lesser. Now the penalty for our rebellion against God is this eternal death. There really is actually no lesser sentence that we can come up with. God's not going to lower the sentence for us. Let me read you a poem. I don't totally know exactly what this is saying, but I kind of get part of it. That's how poetry is, isn't it? This is by a guy named uh, Santiago then. It's a poem called Alone They Live. Maybe catch some of the poetic language here that I think is poignant. Uh, Again, it's called Alone They Live. The bitter taste of an ancient strange fruit still lingers deep within the hearts of men. Men who have hell to pay, yet heaven cannot afford. Men who cannot live on bread alone, yet for bread they work and alone they live. Tears bleeding and stilled by a lifeless frame. Mire, blood, teeth trampled by an oppressive boot. Corpses stacking up like the gallows of Gehenna as the ammunition reverberates in the ebb and flow of hands pressing triggers and Abel dying once more metastasizing deep within the seeds of an ancient fruit begets generations upon generations of static men who cannot live on bread alone, yet for bread they work and alone they live. Men who have hell to pay, yet heaven cannot afford. That line is poignant, isn't it? Men who have hell to pay, but heaven cannot afford. That in our sin we have hell to pay. I think that's the the sentence here, isn't it? That we have an eternal debt to pay and, and, and the consequence is hell. And we can't afford heaven. We can't pay off the debt. There's there's no hope. So if, if this is the sentence that's upon us, how do you settle out of court? Jesus is telling us that we need to settle. You need to deal with this now. Make every effort to settle on the way. How do we no- negotiate this kind of a debt with God? Because God's not going to accept anything less than full payment. We can't negotiate things down. How are we going to settle with God? I think the point is that we repent. In fact, that we come, we confess our inability. We come to Jesus in that moment, if you can imagine. On the way to court, before we're at the trial, before we stand before the judge, we say to Jesus, (laughs) this debt is eternal, Jesus, I can't pay it. I don't have anything. Like, I don't even have, not only am I supposed to pay every last penny, but I don't even have one penny to put towards the debt. I have absolutely nothing to put towards it. What am I going to do? And in that moment, Jesus, who is the accuser, becomes the advocate. Jesus says, I will pay it for you. Jesus, who who is the one who can condemn us, says the penalty is eternal and you can't pay it. You could never pay it. You'll be in jail forever because He wants every last penny and you can't afford it. But I can. I can pay that penalty. I can pay the price for your sin. He becomes the one who pays the debt for us. And He does it by dying on the cross. If the penalty is death and eternal death, then only someone who is perfect and has never sinned can pay for the sins of others. And that's who Jesus is. So Jesus becomes our advocate. He goes to the cross for us. He takes the, the judgment that is due to us on the cross. He pays it, and he pays it to the very last penny. Every penny is paid for by Christ. You got two options, right? Hold out. Think that maybe you got something in court that you can hold up to the judge and say, God, forgive me because I did this, or my parents were this, or look at all my good deeds that I've done. And Jesus says, That's not going to go well for you. He says, Instead, you know what you need to do? You need to settle this now. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Don't, don't wait until it's too late. This is the most important thing in the world. And you're going to miss it. You're going to miss this opportunity to settle. Behold, this is the day of the Lord's favor. It, it's right now. It's in front of you. You can see it. It's as clear as a cloud rising in the west. It's as clear as when you hear thunder and you know a storm is coming. We know who Jesus is. We know that he has come to bring salvation. And either we're just so concerned about lesser things, about the stuff of earth or the fluff of religion that we don't want to think about it, or we are willfully ignorant of it. We're just rejecting it. I'm not ready for that. I don't believe it. I'm I'm ignoring who Jesus is. And he's saying, listen, you don't want to miss this. If you miss this, this is the most important thing in the world. And if you miss it, there is hell to pay. And you can't afford heaven. Settle now. This is a message for for those who may be here today, and you're holding out. Just think, maybe there'll be some of the time. Maybe this isn't as important as everyone seems to think it is. And Jesus is saying, it is. It's the most important thing in the world. You don't want to miss this. Settle now. I think these are words that should be on our lips. I think sometimes we think that there's just so much time, and people are concerned with so many other things, and we need to say, listen. You're so concerned about all this other stuff. You're so concerned about your religion. You're missing what is most important and it's right in front of your eyes. Settle now. Or maybe someone who is just willfully ignorant and by the power of the Spirit, your words might be what breaks their pride and helps them see, listen, you continue to reject this, but I know that you can see the truth of it. Settle now. Because... Your debt has been paid. There's something for us to rejoice in, isn't there? In verse 58 and 59. To recognize that this is us apart from Christ, that we are drug to the judge and then handed over to the officer and thrown in prison. And we'd be there forever until we paid every last penny. But the beautiful truth that Jesus has paid every last penny for us. Jesus has taken the punishment due us for our sins. And we have, if we are believers, then we have settled out of court. There's nothing else that that Christ is going to hold over against us because the bargain has been struck. The settlement has been made. We are saved. And so we should rejoice in that. And we should let others know you don't want to miss this.